everything went haywire pretty quickly. The, we pulled the spectator boat over on its side so that uh, so that their mast was in the water, and then ultimately our capshard hauled our own mizzen mast down. The mizzen mast collapsed and went over the side. And um, fortunately for the spectator boat, they righted without any massive damage. I'll, I'll never forget. So I, I was trimming the mizzen sheet at the time. I'll never forget looking back and seeing the couple, the elderly couple with their dog, who had been sitting on the side deck of their boat eating sandwiches, uh, <laughs> who were, were pulled into the water. And uh, when their boat righted, bless them, they were still there. And the dog, uh, and the dog as well had managed, to stay, had managed to stay on board. Welcome to the Your Skipper podcast, bringing you stories from captains and industry professionals working with super yachts, charter boats, and private yachts around the world. Whether your love is sail or power, and now your host, a super yacht captain for over 20 years who has been sailing since he was eight, Cameron Springthorpe. Okay, so welcome to the Your Skipper podcast. Peter, thanks for joining me today. Please, could you just introduce yourself and just describe where you are as we as we speak? Uh, yes, well, I'm, I'm actually ensconced in, in my captain's cabin on the on a 43-meter sailing yacht in Palma, where we have been under lockdown for the last six, seven weeks nearly. I, I was lucky enough to um, to get a, a temporary job in um, the middle of February, and uh, it's actually stretched out to it's being extended longer than was originally intended. And are you finding enough to keep yourself busy there? Well, there's always some, there's always plenty to do on uh, on whatever kind of boat, sailing boat, motorboat. Uh, so it's there's const, constant maintenance. Yeah, the restrictions are becoming a little bit tedious, I must say. Yes, you, you were saying that today you've was it today you've been able to get off the boat for an hour. We're allowed to take one hour exercise per day strictly regulated time-wise between uh, 6 and 10 in the morning or 8 and 11 in the evening. So um, wow. I'm going out in the middle of the day and enjoying the weather, which is improving now. Well, wow, okay. Well, it's, um, yeah, interesting times we're, we're living in. At least this has given opportunity for us to have this chat. So there's um, some, some good to come out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested to hear about your um career and you've been on such a, a wide range of boats and in so many interesting places and things but um let's just go back to the beginning and how did you get into boating in the first place well i actually i actually started sailing dinghies when i was at school in county fermanagh on on loch Ern. we had a, a our latin teacher uh, was also the sailing master and we had uh, we had a small fleet of um, cadet sailing dinghies which are basically like um, a sailing coffin if you like uh, with a uh, blunt at both yeah. ends, but slightly less, slightly less blunt at the forward end, and that that was that was my introduction. Following that, uh, we we were lucky enough as a family to enjoy summers on Strangford Loch in Northern Ireland. So there was a lot of boating from from a very early age. Were you uh, racing dinghies or just pottering around in them? Initially pottering around, and then we joined a yacht club at East Down. Uh, my father was. Well, he had been boating himself, but never competitively. But he wanted to. Uh, he wanted his kids to enjoy it. We joined a yacht club, and uh, I started with a GP14 racing dinghy. We also raced 
the boats were sort of almost communal property. And so you, we raced different um, different classes. I was in enterprises and uh, mirrors as well. And that developed into uh, Scorpion class dinghy, of which I had two. Myself and others used to um, pack them onto trailers and head over to England and Scotland and, and race in championships uh, around the UK as well. Oh, okay. Uh, so I did, I did that for a number of years. I also raced 505s. We had mod, moderate success in the, in the Scorpion, I have to say. Uh, I remember one championship in Porth Peen in Cornwall where we, uh, myself and, and the, my crew member, who was uh, a brother of a girlfriend at the time, we ended up fifth overall in the fleet of 140 boats. So, Well, that's a good game. It was good times, yeah. And then did you move on to yacht racing? Because... Um... I know ultimately you did, but in Ireland were you were you yacht racing as well? Yes, yeah. Um, my father bought a 23-foot cruiser racer, which was um, built by the Brown brothers in Port of Ferry uh, in Northern Ireland, and we had several seasons racing that across the Irish Sea up to the west of Scotland, the Isle of Man, and that was really my introduction to keelboat racing, if you like. At the time, I was also finishing school, and uh, I joined. Um, I started working in a, a yacht chandlery in in Hollywood, so I was heavily involved in marine business as well as the pleasure side of the keelboat racing. This chandlery was also uh, instrumental in uh, setting up the laser class in Ireland, because at that time there was a performance sailcraft factory in Waterford. And we had the the agency for selling uh, the laser dinghy, and um, we we built a special trailer that was able to to carry six boats. And I travelled around the countryside. I used to go down, take the trailer down to the factory, pick up six boats, drive back up to the north, and then we put them all together. And I went on demonstration trips to different yacht clubs around the province organizing demonstration regattas and selling boats was great fun sounds ideal way to get into the boating scene then they were they were fantastic dinghies they were re- revolutionary at the time compared to the modern boats now they're they're not really exciting any longer but they, but they were uh, a fantastic concept the strict one design I, I seem to remember the first time that i experienced sailing a laser and just being amazed at how easy they were to capsize and to write, like the fact that they didn't fill up with water. That exactly. to me, that was amazing. Like after sailing boats where the water just would pour over the side and you'd have to try and balance it upright to bail it out and everything. Bail which... it out. Yes. If, you, if you did capsize, you were back up again in a flash and and, um, and planing off in no time yeah. at all. They were great boats. Starting in dinghies is... Um, is the way to learn not not just um, sailing but boat handling and everything. It's like if you've got that feel for for boats from a from a dinghy, then it always helps in the future. I agree completely, hundred percent. I was in the chandlery until um, until I was twenty one or twenty two, and sort of looking for something else to do. I worked for my father for a couple of years. He had a marketing business concentrating mainly on contract floor coverings to architects and, and contractors. But it, I, I wasn't really um, inspired by it, although I did. we did work together for five or six years. 
he knew I, I wasn't interested in, in taking it over and I, and I gradually faded out of it, if you like. We remained very close. But in 1983, I took off to Greece and I uh, spent a season there as captain of a flotilla for a company called Island Sailing. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we, uh, uh, it was a flotilla sailing business and the area I was in was the um, Saurana Gulf side of Athens, okay. so yeah. we were sailing around Porus, Hydra, Spetses, um, in fairly benign Greek summer conditions. You must have been right at the start of the flotilla side of things. I guess they'd have been yes. very small boats and very simple boats as well. They were. We, uh, we sailed a fleet of Maxi 32s. Oh, we had one of those as a lead boat, yeah. Yes, it was yeah. probably... <laughs> Yeah. Probably one of one of your old boats, yeah. Probably one of our old ones, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they were a bit tired even then. I don't know, but it was good fun. However, I wasn't interested in 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 uh, following it up with a second season. And yeah, at the end of that year, um, some people that I knew from Northern Ireland had got in touch because they had chartered a yacht in Australia to do the Sydney Hobart race. Uh, they invited me to go down and join them. I set off for Australia at, after the season had closed, and I suppose we got uh, we, we gathered down there at the beginning of December. Uh, this bunch of hoodlums from Northern Ireland to to do a Sydney Hobart. <laughs> what what boat did you have for that? Well, it was it was a, a far forty, um, an old okay. two tonner under the old IOR rating um, system. Yeah, and. We got there and actually it was a bit of a disappointment, the boat, because it was pretty tired. Okay. We, we had to spend uh, quite a bit of time bringing it up to scratch and um, making it seaworthy enough to do the race. Yeah. Uh, we, we did a, uh, there was a, a preliminary coastal race, um, which we did about two weeks before the start of the Sydney Hobart. And I can't remember exactly the name of it, but um, anyway, uh, we were outside the Sydney Heads, racing up and down the coast, and um, it was a, a sort of an overnight race, relatively short. And we were coming back into the towards the, the finish. We were beating up from the south to to the north to come in through the Heads, and the, the steering suddenly went extremely light and. The helmsman wasn't able to control the boat properly, and we got hit by a gust of wind, and the boat tacked basically itself. He wasn't able to control it, and we couldn't really understand what had happened. And we uh, managed to get back into the heads. We got, we, we, I think we took the sails down and motored in anyway, hauled the boat out, and discovered that half of the lower the lower half of the rudder wasn't there any longer. Oh, it had yeah. it had simply simply broken off and uh, so two weeks before the start of the Sydney Hobart we had to get a new rudder made for the boat and uh, but anyway we succeeded and uh, and did make the start but um, yes the um, the guys who chartered the boat were were not well pleased with with their uh, with the charterer I can tell you yeah well good job that it happened uh, happened then I guess exactly yes yeah Fortunately, we, we were there in time. In, we, well, we had the time to uh, to repair it. 
Yeah. Well, I also remember we, um, early on we couldn't, we had really difficulties hoisting the mainsail, and it occurred to us that the uh, that the sheave at the top of the mast was um, seized up at some stage, uh, and the the boat was uh, seven eighth rig. So anyway, I was elected to go up the rig and see what the problem was with the sheave, um, but of course. Uh, with a seven eighth rig, you've got to, you've got to ha- you've got to, they can hoist you up to the um, where the Genoa is is yeah. she goes in, and then you've got to climb hand over hand the last six feet to the top of the mast. Yes, not so, not something I'd undertake today. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Well, we we're invincible when we're when we're that age, aren't we? That exactly. Yes. <laughs> and, and anyway. We uh, we had a very um, we had a relatively light weather race, no breakages, nothing outstanding weather-wise, and completed it successfully. Most of the crew flew home from Hobart, and myself and some delivery crew then sailed the boat back to Sydney, and got completely pasted on the way. Uh, okay. By- Storm in the Bass Strait, of course. Yeah. I always picture it in my mind as being um, an area of getting pasted. So it happened, happened to us, of course, with with a relatively inexperienced delivery crew on the way home, which is which was, uh, yeah. Okay. It, it was it was a tough couple of days. We put we pulled yeah. we pulled into Eden on the south coast of Australia afterwards uh, after the storm had passed to give everybody a break because it it had it had been pretty uh, exhausting. A lot of ill people lying in, in the in the lured bilges of a very wet racing boat. <laughs> oh yes, but so no. at that stage, were, were you thinking of making a career in in racing, or were you just kind of taking a day at a time? A, a little bit of day at a time. I um, I ended up staying six months in Australia, just because I thought, well, I'm there. I, I might as well have a look around. Um, I did some house painting in Sydney, and I worked on a cotton farm up in northwest of New South Wales. Eventually, my visa was running out, so I had to fly home, and I went back to Ireland. And we did uh, join the, the, the same guys who had chartered the boat. Of course, had had their own racing boat in in Ireland, and uh, we did the round Ireland race in 1984 in a boat called Hesperia Three. That was the year that Moon, Moon Duster won it. One of the years that she won it, and uh, we came first in our class, fourth overall. At that stage, then I, I was starting to think of more ocean racing, and Coming towards the end of '84, uh, I went to I went to spend a season in in Austria at a ski resort, and I also started writing to the Whitbread Race um, Committee to find out who uh, addresses to send letters of application to to get on the '85 '86 race, which was starting the following September. Ah, okay. I eventually got I got a positive reply from. Um, a guy called Plun van der Lucht, who was the Dutch skipper of, a, of an entry called Equity and Law, which was uh, sponsored by an insurance company of that name in, in Holland. Yeah. And I went to join them in March of 85 uh, in Skeveningen in Holland. And we spent the following six months training and preparing for that race. Must have felt like winning the lottery when you got that that opportunity, did it? No, uh, it was. It was uh, I, I, w- I was delighted, of course. It felt exactly what I wanted to do at the time, so it was it was perfect. 
we did the number of races in the North Sea, and and then we did a, an extended pretend race, if you like, from Holland up to Iceland and back down to Sweden okay. uh, as part of the training. So were the rest of the crew Dutch or was it a mixture? It, we, were, we were a mixture, uh, a New Zealander, an Australian, a Scotsman, uh, myself and the others were Dutch, just 10 of us on board. That would have been uh, when you were in your 30s, I'm guessing then. Just 31, yeah. We had wow. we had one guy on board at eighteen. I was I think I was probably one of the one of the older ones on board. Yeah, apart from the skipper. And how did the race go? A bit mixed. We uh, had a had a problem with the mast on the first leg. Actually, one of the the one of the spreaders broke free of the mast, and we had to put into Monrovia in Liberia. Oh God. And our project manager flew in from with with uh, spare parts from uh, from Holland, and we spent a couple of days uh, just working around the clock to repair the rig in Monrovia, and then we set off again, chasing the rest of the fleet. We lost a couple of days there. The the leading boats, the Maxis, got heavily damaged uh, in in a storm off the coast right. of Namibia. I think one of them one of them lost the rig. And another one was delaminating, but it was, uh, and they and they were also thinking of, of retiring. What what size was um, equity in law? Equity in law was just fifty five feet, so okay. we were quite a way behind the maxis anyway. Yeah, probably one of the smallest, wasn't she? We were, we were one of the smaller boats, exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't remember much about that race because I was only ten at the time. But um, was that not the Whitbread that had uh, Eric Tabalay in it? Yes, he, he was on Cote d'Or. They had to concede a penalty for changing their keel at one stage. Oh, okay. Um, before before the start of the race, we, I mean, we had we of course had done uh, the, the Fastnet that year and the channel and the Channel race uh, as part of the build-up. Yeah. Uh, and um, I I met uh, about two weeks before the start. There was a huge party in the drum house in Hamble. Uh, yeah. Because of course this was before people were professionals, so we we were we did a lot of partying as well. I don't think they do so much any longer, <laughs> the new professionals. But um, I bumped into uh, the girl who is now my wife, at at oh, the drum okay. in Hamble. She told me, amongst other things, that uh, she had been in touch with um, a businessman called uh, Warren Brown in Bermuda, who, who was who was planning to um, take his cruising boat called War Baby. From Bermuda oh, to the Antarctic, and uh, I, I said to her casually, "Well, the, yeah, stick my name on the application and uh, tell him I'd like to go as well." Anyway, long story short, uh, the Equity and Law sponsors had at a party in Holland before the boat left Holland had had um, after they'd had a few bottles of wine, they got up and said that they were going to fly all the girlfriends out to New Zealand for the stopover in Auckland. So I managed to uh, to get. <laughs> My new girlfriend added added to the ticket, and uh, so all all the girls were flown out to to uh, New Zealand. At that stage, when she had been keeping up contact with um, with Warren Brown, setting up telephone interviews, which I should do in Punta del Este when we we got there the fo- the following leg, and uh, the result of it all was that when we got back. 
to Portsmouth at the end of the race. Mula was there at, at the finish, and she had two airline tickets for us to fly to Bermuda and join the boat. So was she on another boat in the Whitbread then, or just at, at the party? She was just at the party, and she had just sailed from uh, Finland to the south of England on a Swan 57 on a delivery. She was actually working in, um, in Newport at the time with a publication called Nautical Quarterly. And she had, before she joined Nautical Quarterly, she had been working in the sail loft in, uh, in Marblehead with Robbie Doyle. So, I mean, she, she's from a sailing oh, right. background as well. So you joined War Baby together in Bermuda? In 86, yeah. Well, the, the original plan had been to basically do a circumnavigation of South America. So through, um, through the Panama Canal, down the Pacific to Falkland Islands and Antarctic Peninsula, and then Warren was going to take the boat back up the Atlantic to Bermuda. But oh. he enjoyed he enjoyed the Chilean channels in Patagonia so much that we actually just returned to Chile, and I stayed on as captain on the boat and did a second season in Patagonia in 1987-88. Okay. It, it was the most amazing adventure trip. Um, yeah, it must have been. We left Bermuda uh, through through Panama Canal. We went out to visit Cocos Island in Costa Rica. Uh, we spent three weeks in Galapagos in, well, it would have been sort of August 86 at this stage. At that stage, you, there were almost no yachts visiting them. Um, the, and, and it is, of course, uh, a protected national park. So we, we had to have a, um, a national guide on on the boat with us, yeah. Which just added to the interest, of course, because the the knowledge that these guys have and they were able to disseminate was just fantastic. Warren also had a professional ornithologist with us on the boat, so we were constantly getting um, <laughs> fed information about the wildlife and the bird life, and it was it was amazing, really. And then we carried on down to Peru, where we um, stopped for a couple of weeks, and we were able to go up into the Andes and, and visit Machu Picchu and uh, Cusco and the Inca sites. We continued down the coast of Chile to Santiago, and there we um, continued to um, Puerto Montt, which is at the, the northern end of, of the Patagonian uh, Chilean channels. And then the owner flew in again with with uh, he he was going backwards and forwards with friends and family uh, while we moved the boat from the places that he actually wanted to visit himself. Sure. So was it just the the two of you on board when he wasn't there? Um, no, we also had a, a Norwegian law student with us and yeah. uh, an English young guy called Phil Wilson. So there, there there were four of us as permanent crew. Interestingly enough, the the, the Norwegian law student his name is Erling Kaga and he later became a very famous well still is a very famous um, polar explorer uh, who has walked to the North Pole with two of his friends and has also walked alone to the South Pole has climbed Everest as well so wow. he's now a successful publisher in Oslo. <laughs> 
yeah, that must have been just a incredible trip. I mean, that that area just is fascinating, and then to have a great boat like I mean, War, War, I'm not really sure what War Baby's kind of famous for, but I've I've often heard the name. Uh, it it was um, an SNS design, um, a forerunner of of their Swan sixty five. Ah, okay. Uh, right. And it was it was built it was built as Dora four um, to win the Chicago Mackinac race. Um, the builders were Palmer Johnson. It did win the race, and it was subsequently bought by Ted Turner, who called it Tenacious, and uh, was the winner of the 1979 Fastnet, where um, so many people were, were, were lost. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Then bought by Warren Brown and renamed uh, War Baby. Quite a history, then, yeah. Quite a history, yeah. Was she yeah, a catch? Sailed... No, she was. A, she was a sloop. Sloop, okay. Yeah. I just asked because of the thinking of the Swan 65s. Yes, they, it, the they, they were mostly built as catches. There were one or two sloops. We had fantastic cruising uh, in the in the channels, which is a, an unbelievable area of natural beauty. Yeah. Then we had Christmas there in, in Punta Arenas, getting absolutely blasted by the winds on alongside the dock. After New Year, um, Warren and his family came down again, and we sailed out to the Falkland Islands. Amazing. And, 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 did, and did a couple of days cruising around the Falkland Islands, uh, trekking over areas where they were still clearing the mines after the uh, Argentinian invasion of a couple of years previously. Gosh. And after that, we sailed down to the Antarctic Peninsula and visited a couple of the uh, bases down there, Palmer Station. The American base, Chilean bases of Arturo Pratt and Commandante Fry on on King George Island, right. uh, where, where I was lucky enough to be taken up in a helicopter uh, by the the boss of the of the station. Oh wow! Uh, on a on a joyride across the ice field and the icebergs wow. around King George Island, it was absolutely fascinating. We uh, sailed further south down to. Um, a place called Paradise Harbour in unbelievable sun, beautiful conditions. So that was that was as far south as we got, 65 degrees south. So we were about 100 miles shy of the Antarctic Circle. But this and, before, uh, before it became kind of explored and, and popular with Skip Novak and his Pelagic. And then also, I guess now there's all the all the uh, cruise ships and so on as well. But back then it must have, yeah, you must have really been felt like you're on the edge of edge of the world exploring. And It did. That's exactly what it felt like. And uh, of course, the, the, the wildlife is, is, is fantastic. And, and the scenery, just everything is amazing. And I fully understand how Skip and you got so captivated by it. And uh, he, well, he's spent 30, 30 years plus down there now, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so we returned back up to Cape Horn to the Chilean um, channels. We actually we actually landed on Cape Horn. Uh, we we arrived there in in a complete calm, and uh, it was too deep for us to anchor. So so we went ashore in in two different parties while half the crew circled in in the yacht, and uh, and marched up the hill to say hello to the Chilean uh, lighthouse keepers and their dog. Well, <laughs> on, on, on top of the, uh, on, on I bet they don't get many people doing that. I don't think so. And it, at that stage, the, you know, the, the weather information used to come through on on faxes. Lighthouse keepers on Cape Horn 
obviously had they were part of the Chilean Navy and they were kept well up and well up to date with what was going on. And they, they advised us when the second party was ashore that uh, it might be time for that party to get back to the boat and, and, and get moving. Oh, okay. uh, so they they hurriedly returned and we got aboard. And um, later that night, we were sheltering behind the Wollaston Island in, in 70 knots of wind. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, it was. It was really. It was really pumping. Um, they had warned us just in time. We had all the wind, but we were in the shell in the lee of, of uh, as I say, of Wollaston Island. So we weren't didn't have to deal with massive waves, but it was. It was impressive storm. Yeah, things change so quickly in the higher latitudes, don't they? It's uh, yeah. You yeah. can't can't relax for a minute. Did you um, end up taking her back um, up the Atlantic or? Well, no, we we, re- we returned to a town in Chile called Valdivia, and uh, I and I looked after the boat there. Yeah, so we we, we had uh, Warren and and uh, some friends came out again the following season, and uh, also a group of people from Ireland, including John Gore Grimes, who who was a himself um, a well known Arctic sailor. He and some friends joined us for uh, nearly a month down there. So we did a lot a lot of um, exploring around the different channels and islands. It was fantastic. And then myself and at, the, at, the, at this stage, Mulla had gone back to work in Sweden. But, um, she and a few other friends came out when the boat was due to be brought back to Bermuda. And we sailed, we sailed uh, back up past Peru and through the, through the Panama Canal again and had an awful slog from Panama up to the Windward Islands. Uh, we stopped at St. Croix, St. Croix, as the Americans call it. Okay. Um, Hauled the boat out of the water, did some bottom repainting. We took off the reinforcement we had, the ice reinforcement on the, on the bow of the boat, which was it was a welded on because the boat was aluminium. Right. Uh, and then we sailed from St. Croix to, to uh, Antigua and again put together a, a racing crew. And we basically converted the boat from, from its blue water cruising mode into its round the cans racing mode and my father and stepmother flew out from uh, from ireland and joined us and we won our class in antigua race week oh nice then we sailed the boat up to bermuda and handed it back to to warren will and i flew home and uh, spent some time in ireland before ending up um, buying a small apartment in london where we got married this is this is rushing through things a little bit now um and <laughs> And I subsequently signed up to join Roger Nielsen on his um, 89-90 Maxi race uh, around the world project on in the Maxi class, okay. where we lined up again with Peter Blake on, on Steinlager. What, what boat were you on there? It was called the Card. Ah, oh, the Card. Okay. Oh, she, yeah. she did okay. She was in the top few, wasn't she, overall, I seem to remember? Yeah, we... we, we, we we ended up fifth. Rothmans beat us. Um, obviously, Steinlager and Grant Dalton in uh, New Zealand Enterprise, yeah. I think. To me, that Whitbread was kind of, I, I know it wasn't the last Whitbread, but it was kind of getting towards the end of what, what I always picture the Whitbread to be, like the, the mixed boats and uh, before they went to the one design class. And it was sort of, I don't know, it was to me, that Whitbread was kind of iconic and sticks in my mind, but maybe that's just because of the... Um, yeah. where it fits in my life i'm not sure yeah uh, it was a, it was a fantastic race i mean uh, we had a, 
lots of ups and downs. It, it, it was still, it was sort of crossing over between the adventure race of 80, the adventure type of race that we'd had previously into the um, the more professional one, one design system that, that, that they used subsequently. We were starting to get paid, which made it easier to sustain. I'll never forget when we sailed out of, out of the, the Solent, three far catches should have been um, more or less the same speed. But in fact, Steinlager was um, a, a develop, the latest development and the boat that we were on the card had been one of his initial designs. And uh, it, it was obvious before we passed the needles that they were 10% faster than we were. So oh, it, was a, it was a struggle for the next 30,000 miles. They won every single leg of the race. So Yeah. But um, but still, I mean, the, the 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 Southern Ocean sailing is sensational. It's just screaming down the waves at, at thirty knots. Is uh, it's it's unbelievable. In, in that era, you weren't able to sail around the weather systems so much. So you kind of you were getting what you were dealt to some extent. Exactly, and. And it was before the, it was before the days that they put these gates in in the Southern Ocean. So we, we were going south with impunity, really, and uh, saw a lot of saw a lot of icebergs. Those are the uh, those are the slightly um, yeah squeaky moments, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, because they don't appear on um, on radar, do they? Either they so, the small ones, the small ones don't appear on radar. No, the big ones you can see, no problem. But uh, yeah. You're passing by the small ones, and you think, "Well, if we hit one of those in the middle of the night, it won't be." Um, you're kind of just taking—I mean, you're just putting your faith out there. You're kind of going, "Well, hopefully we won't." But there's there's nothing you can do much. about it at all, is there? It's pretty much. Night. Yes. No. Yeah. Gosh, I, I can't imagine what it must be like—the the the feeling of when you leave the Solent and you're heading out, um, and you know that you're off to race around the world. Like that in itself, to me, just—I uh, can't quite imagine what that must be like. That moment. Very exhilarating. You you just le- le- you're leaving everything behind, and you just in your own little bubble, concentrating on getting the maximum performance out of the boat, twenty four hours a day. And I guess your communications back then would have been single sideband, or yes, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so at least you, you knew where the boats were. What once a day? Or- there, there was a twice daily. Um, communications with race headquarters so, so we we could pinpoint where other boats were and make tactical decisions based on on that and and the weather forecasting which would which was much improved from the 85 86 race wow fascinating uh, yes big excitement when we were leaving auckland of course we um i don't know if you've seen the film of that race but uh, we're exit exiting auckland harbor trying to avoid one of the other race boats and we sailed we sailed into the spectator fleet and uh, snagged our leeward cap shroud of the mizzen mast on on the top of a spectator boat everything went haywire pretty quickly the, we pulled the spectator boat over on its side so that uh, so that their mast was in the water and then ultimately our cap shroud hauled our own mizzen mast down the mizzen mast collapsed and went over the side and um, fortunately for the spectator boat, they righted without any massive damage. I'll, I'll never forget. So I, I was trimming the mizzen sheet at the time. I'll never forget looking back and seeing the couple, the elderly couple with their dog, who had been sitting on the side deck of their boat eating sandwiches, uh, <laughs> who were, were pulled into the water. And uh, oh, when their boat righted, bless them, they were still there. 
and the dog uh, and the dog as well had managed to stay, had managed to stay on board. So that was a total disaster, of course. And yeah, uh, we had to we had to we 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 took the radar off off the the broken mizzen uh, and as much wiring as as we could, and we um, dumped the whole lot over the side, and we carried on racing and uh, left the shore crew to to come and uh, salvage it and see if it could be repaired. Wow. So we raced that leg from uh, Auckland to Punta del Este uh, as a uh, as a sloop. We did get bored enough so that we actually put two spinnaker poles together and and put up a, a jury mizzen mast. And the sailmakers, bless them, worked on uh, some broken spinnakers and cu- cut a sail that we could hoist on this jury mizzen mast. But then, of course, ultimately that fell down as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> We had 20 guys on the boat or something like that, and only one rig to look after, so yeah, instead of two. And did you still manage to place in the in that leg? Uh, I think I think uh, we were we were sixth in that leg. Not too bad, considering you lost the mast in the in the process. <laughs> well, no, it, it's funny. At the, at the end of the first day, when we had lost the mast, we were still leaving New Zealand. We we were actually leading the fleet because everybody in front of us had sailed into a hole, and we sailed around them. But of course, that lead didn't last very long. We ended up fifth overall, which yes. I suppose wasn't too bad. And from both races, I've still got, you know, some friends for life. Great experience. Yeah, I can imagine. So how did you go from uh, the world of racing boats into super yachting? The, the, the following years, uh, we've, Will and I, we moved from London to Sweden. Um, I actually ended up doing a summer project with, with Roger Nilsson, who was, the, who was the skipper of the card at the time. Then I was thinking of more about a career in in sailing boats or a maritime career because yeah. I certainly wasn't going to go back to any kind of office job or salesman's job or something like that. So I started writing to yacht designers to see if they they could put me in touch with owners who were building building boats. And, uh, and Ed Dubois came up trumps and put me in touch with this Greek businessman who was um, building a hundred footer, a sort of a classic, modern classic cutter sloop building in, in Holland. I went to meet him in London and he employed me as his project manager stroke skipper. And I started working in Holland for him in, in uh, 94. And I stayed with him for 17 years. Oh, wow. Okay. On different boats. He, he also had a, a 32 meter motorboat, which he kept out in, in Greece. And uh, I was, would work, work on that sometimes in the summer. Yeah. Uh, but mostly, I was running his um, his hundred foot sailing boat, which he had he had built on spec to try and and sell. But it it took thirteen years to sell it. So I uh, <laughs> I, I was I was skipper of a of a boat which was very lightly used um, for thirteen years until we did actually manage to to move it on. And by that time, he in the beginning he had intended to build uh, several of these, um, but the steam sort of went out of that ambition when the first one took so long to sell. Right. But in many ways, it, it was uh, a blessing for me because um, our family had begun. So we had young kids and I, he was a very understanding boss to work for. And I was, I was able to spend significant uh, time at home with my young family. Yeah, okay. and, uh, and we, at the same time, were doing a lot of boat shows on different sides, on both sides of the Atlantic, to try and sell the boat so I was doing 
quite a few Atlantic crossings and sometimes my wife would come with me and, and bring the kids for um, not across the Atlantic, but for the legs from, for instance, St. Martin up to Fort Lauderdale and uh, yeah. or from Gibraltar to Palma. It was a bit bit like having a, a personal super yacht for a <laughs> part of the time. Tremendous years. Yeah, that sounds sounds great. It was very, very gratifying. And we remain good friends to this day. We had a tremendous relationship. And as you say, the, the, the trust and the mutual respect is is um, something which only comes with with a, a long term relationship like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that, okay. that, that was my first kind of long term super yacht job. And um, subsequent to that, I have kind of been freelancing and doing rotational uh, rotational work on on different um, 30 to 40 meter 45 meter sailing boats in different parts of the world and and that's what brings me to to where I am now and being able to to continue at these advanced years is uh, <laughs> is very gratifying <laughs> There, there was there was a few boats that I was particularly interested in that I know you, you've been on. And one that I was curious about was Lambda Mar, the motorboat. Um, uh, yes, I sort of skipped that. It was building in in, um, in Sweden, which is unusual in itself. I was brought into it sort of halfway through the build stage. And most of my involvement with the boat was in the yard. We did a couple of sea trials on it. It, it was an amazing machine. I mean, it, it had two 16-cylinder MTUs. And between these, it was water jet driven. Uh, and between the between the two main engines was this uh, three thousand horsepower um, jet engine coupled coupled to a gearbox which which weighed about three tons. Was that uh, di- to, uh, gas powered then, or it, it it was diesel powered? But and the reduction gearbox had to re- had to reduce the RPM from from sort of twenty thousand to four thousand. Uh, or the numbers are are wrong. But if you did yeah. the research, I could probably find out. But during sea trials, we achieved speeds of forty knots. So it was ridiculous. And a four, forty knots on a forty-three meter, so what, one hundred and forty foot motor yacht. Yes, I mean the boat I, would boat, the boat was actually planing. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine what that must feel like. The um, to have something so massive doing that speed must be just quite an incredible. It was really, but it wasn't really a sort of boat that was appealing to me. I have to say, and sure. uh, the the owner started to get into financial difficulties. The yard he was building it in actually was was forced into bankruptcy. The, the project did get finished. Uh, it was a bit of a, an unlucky project, and the, the boat capsized in the at the first launch because the because the they hadn't chocked it properly whenever they sent it sent it down the the slipway into the into the sea that coincided with the time that uh, that ed dubois got back to me and and said that he thought he might have a a job for me so sounded like it worked out well so it sort of worked out well yes exactly well that's um still an interesting boat i wonder if she's still around today i hate to think what the fuel costs of that of that beast would be i, I believe it is still around today but i also okay. believe that the jet turbine has, has been removed and it's just a conventional twin engined oh, okay. now. yeah oh, well probably better yes. <laughs> better for the environment anyway and you've been on on quite a range of of beautiful big yachts over these um these last years doing relief work does any any stand out in particular 
part to say make a favorite yeah. uh Timonier is a fantastic cruising boat uh and sarissa yeah. is a fantastic performance sailing boat but uh i mean for pure mile making comfort when you're crossing the atlantic Timonier stands out as being uh, a great boat to sail i've got a feeling that she she's done some um, high latitudes cruising hasn't she She's been to many remote places around the world. I, I, I yeah. couldn't begin to to, uh, to list, list them all, but the captain was in earlier years was uh, Phil Wade, who was also uh, in, involved in the original Pelagic with Skip Novak. Um, yes, actually, Skip and Phil sailed on drum together in 1985. I believe that's where the idea for Pelagic was uh, was born, sitting on the rail of drum. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, he's been another person who's been lucky enough to have a long-term relationship with with the yachting family. I think he worked for the Gosnell family for 20 years on two different Timoniers, and uh, and they did incredible exploration. Spent yeah. a lot of time in Alaska. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, beautiful. When we met, you were over here in Scotland doing some work with St. Hilda Sea Adventures. Yes. Fantastic season, really. I saw an advertisement, I think, or I saw a post that uh, that you had put into the Super Yacht Captain's website that St. Hilda Sea Adventures were looking for a, a captain to, to run Seahorse 2 yep. uh, last year. And I replied to Julie and Michael, and they took me on as one of the captains for, for last year. And it was... Um, it was fantastic for me to be, to go back to the west of Scotland, which I hadn't really uh, explored properly, and I hadn't been to since racing sailboat days thirty years prior. They've got a marvelous business there with fantastic concept, taking yes. out photographers, nature lovers, bird spotters, artists, canoeing parties on these mini cruises around the Western Hebrides. Fantastic, and I yeah had planned to go there again this summer and um, well as you know everything's on hold this summer so we don't know what it's going to bring no indeed to be honest after having spent so many years um in, in the mediterranean um yeah it really is a, a freshening experience to to spend a season in the west of scotland because it is so stunning yes. and and um she's quite an interesting boat seahorse too isn't she Certainly very different to anything that uh, I've been involved with previously, but it does its job supremely well. It was a small car ferry up in the north of Norway in its original configuration, and it was also used as a um, dive support vessel whenever the the bridge between Denmark and Sweden was being built. And then um, I think, as, as you know, this chap in Scotland bought it and he used to tow targets for the um, for the Royal Navy to, to shoot at. Yes. Yeah. He was telling us uh, when we did the handover with him, when, when uh, St. Hilda bought the boat, he was saying that occasionally they would get the uh, missiles would, would lock onto the heat profile of the, of the stack. She was um, got a big variable pitch propeller. So he'd just put the, put the pitch hard over and put the helm hard over and um, then let, let it fire into the water. (laughs) (laughs) But he was paid very well, danger money for it by the sounds of it. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds a little bit hairy. <laughs> yes, yes. So are you in uh, Mallorca now? Obviously, with the lockdown, you're there there for a while. But um, when, when the lockdown's finished, is your job also finished? Or do you expect that to be extended? How does... Well, I think I'm going to be here for a little bit, little while longer. This boat I'm on at the moment called Sea Eagle 2, or Sea Eagle 1, 
um, is due for a five-year survey. And the, the chap who's on holiday, the other captain, is in New Zealand at the moment. So it's, it's, everything's up in the air. It's unsure when he'll be able to return. There is a, another management uh, level who are in Holland um, building the owner's new boat, which is Sea Eagle 2. So I'm really working under him at the moment. Um, and we'll, we'll see how long, how long um, this stretches. But at the moment, I'm initiating or reinitiating uh, contacts with Lloyd's Register to see if we can get the survey moving as restrictions ease up here in Palma. Super. Well, Peter, thank you for joining me on the podcast. It's been um, absolutely fascinating and I've, I've loved just hearing your stories and hearing a bit of, of your history. So it's been great. Thanks a lot. It's been my pleasure, Cameron. Lovely talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Your Skipper podcast from yourskipper.co.uk. For show notes or to contact Cameron directly, please visit yourskipper.co.uk.